ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's a, a triple nightmare now with China suddenly and with unexpectedly coming out with this life in prison or death sentence. My government is concerned with the fight against inflation. Peter Dutton's concerned about fighting culture wars. And I think if the Prime Minister wants to renege on an election commitment he's taken to the last two elections, I think he should call an election. The housing system is cooked in this country. And I was praying that the Minister and the government would finally wake up to themselves and do the right thing. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly, host of Saturday Extra on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And soon we're going to be joined in The Party Room by Cameron Stewart, who's the Chief International Correspondent for the Australian newspaper, to talk about... Well, the political implications, really, of that suspended death sentence China handed down to detained Australian author Yang Heng Jun this week, and what it might mean for Australia's broader relations with China, not to mention what it might mean for Yang Heng Jun and his family and loved ones. But first, PK, before we get to that, Parliament really sprang back into life this week and government MPs had a spring in their step to keep that going that they haven't had for a while, with pretty good reason. The Albanese government's had a few big wins this week. First, there was tax cuts when the coalition reversed its opposition to Labor's revised stage three tax cuts, you know, after a week of fairly ferocious attack on Labor's change of plan on stage three, accusing Labor of class warfare, branding Albanese the liar in the lodge. Peter Dutton then emerged from a party room meeting on Tuesday night to declare the opposition would vote for Labor's new tax plan. So it was a concession really made through gritted teeth. The Coalition is not going to stand in the way of providing support to Australians who are doing it tough. Prime Minister's made this change for his own political survival. We're supporting this change not to support the Prime Minister's lie, but to support those families who need help now, because Labor has made decisions that have made it much harder for those families. We will take to the next election a significant tax policy, which will reduce taxes for Australian taxpayers. It was quite the capitulation, PK, but it didn't really have much choice, did he? To oppose bigger tax cuts for 11 million Australians was always going to be a hard sell come ballot box time. Fran, he had no other choice politically. How could they not support this tax change, given the numbers that you just talk about? Imagine if they voted this down. This would have been weaponised against them in the most ferocious way. They, they would have been seen as supporting just the top end of town and uh, the, the political risk would have been just too big. Now, of course, they were hearing the feedback from their own uh, MPs on the backbench who clearly were getting feedback from the electorate that uh, people needed support and uh, the majority of people, even in coalition electorates, are still middle-income uh, people. This is like where the, the bulk of Australian people sit on the income scale. And then if they didn't hear it from their own MPs, Fran, they, they would have heard it in all of the published and unpublished polling. So news poll showing 62% of voters believe the Prime Minister's made the right choice by making these changes to the stage three tax cuts. There was the Labor internal polling, which was even stronger, showing support for this. 
and and I don't know if the coalition's got um, some some uh, research in the field. I assume they would. They so all of the all of the indicators showing that this was politically a winner. So. Peter Dutton had no other option. The difficulty is now that the shoe is on the other foot. And when I say the shoe is on the other foot, I I received a text message from a senior cabinet minister in the government saying, you know, irony. Um, Remember, this is what happened to Labor where they had where they supported the stage three tax cuts originally, the original legislation. And they didn't want to. They kept saying, we don't agree with these. These are wrong. Proof will tell. We'll come. But then they pass them. It's the same It's the same script, but it, the shoe is literally on the other foot, Fran, where they're saying the same things. This is bracket creep. This is going to kill aspiration. All of the same rhetoric, but people need help now and we don't want to stand in the way. Same reason that Labor back then voted for the original tax cuts that we, you know, have been debating for really what seems like years. So Peter Dutton has had to do this. Is it a humiliating backflip or a a capitulation? You can use whatever elaborate language you want to use, but it's pragmatism 101. Sure. Uh, As we just heard there, Peter Dutton was not exactly promising to reinstate the coalition's original stage three tax cuts, which, you know, had bigger tax cuts for higher income earners than Labor's package. That would cost an extra $9 billion a year. That's a lot. And he knows now not to sort of tie himself to that in case he doesn't have that $9 billion handy or he wants to use it in a better way. So he's not making that promise yet. But he is promising, we heard there, quote, a significant tax policy that will reduce taxes for Australian taxpayers. That's what he's going to take to the next election, he told us. What does that mean? We don't know. But open-ended promises, PK, are always ripe for a scare campaign. If uh, the opposition uh, wants to say that they're just going to have more tax cuts, then this is bear in mind their third position that they've had in a week, uh, then they need to say, what will the cuts be and what will the new taxes be in order to make up for it? Either that or they're going to be fiscally irresponsible. So it's scare campaigns all the way around from both sides. Peter Dutton's strategy seems to be all based around Anthony Albanese's honesty after he broke his promise not to touch the stage three tax cuts. The opposition leader's really going for broke with this still, even though they've had to do this backflip and wave through the stage three tax cuts. They're still going on the broken promise. You can't trust the Prime Minister. The coalition's now claiming Labor has a secret plan to cut negative gearing, increase capital gains tax and even tax the family home, which as far as I can see, they don't. We haven't seen it yet anyway. How dangerous though is this for Labor or is it an opportunity, PK, to have the whole parliament now talking about tax reform? There is lots of... <laughs> that was a big sigh. Yeah, I'm very deliberately blown into the microphone so people could understand how I feel about <laughs> it. I think it is dangerous for Labor. Uh, there are dangers here for sure. But the dangers now are more equal opportunity dangers on both sides. The difference, however, is that Labor has broken a promise. They say it's a change of policy. You can call it whatever you want, but it's not what they were saying before the election, and that's that's obvious. And so I do think that carries some risk for them. This doesn't become a habit that they say something and then do something else because then that, that story, I think, can be quite problematic for them. Because the ghosts of 2019 are still there and they know that 
uh, there that the, if they don't tread carefully, that there are many that will be worried about what the implications will be for them. The family home, I don't know anyone who's going to touch the family home, political suicide for anyone. But on the other issues of capital gains and negative gearing, I do think there has to be a bigger policy debate. The government, though, has to be very much in control of that policy debate or it can run off the rails in in my own observation. Yeah, exactly. PK, the other big win for the government this week, because they have had a big week, was securing crossbench support for its contentious IR legislation, the Closing Loopholes Bill. This is all about those promises they took to the election to give minimum pay standards for gig workers and also rights for long-time casual workers to be made permanent if they want. On Wednesday night, the government got David Pocock over the line, plus the Greens, following their successful push for the bill to include something called the right to disconnect, which we might talk about that that gives employees the right to ignore contact from your bosses outside of work hours within reason much of the business community is very unhappy with these changes loudly unhappy i would say but labor now has the numbers and this is a big win for them a massive win, Fran. So a, a really strong week for the government. Uh, it was a long negotiation, 20 amendments from independent senators David Pocock and Jackie Lambie alone. When I interviewed those two crossbench senators on breakfast this week, I was I was struck by how both of them mentioned Tony Burke's respectful negotiation style. Clearly, he must have got it right because he's got a deal, right? Yeah, I mean, he seems to be good at this, doesn't he? Remember last year he went with David Pocock to a a, a public meeting in Canberra to talk through the bill. Uh, He seems to be have quite a sort of talent for this. And I was struck by how complimentary they were about him when they were talking to you. Yeah, I was really struck by it. And if you don't have that approach, then you don't get deals. And the Senate, they don't control the Senate. So this is the approach that you need if you want to be a government that gets stuff done. There's been an expansion in some areas. Some people won't like it. Business is concerned about how this may have unintended consequences. What do you think about this right to disconnect I think it's a really, really interesting proposal. It has happened in other countries. They have clearly moderated its scope at the start. The minister, you know, was talking about perhaps fines for employers. That That's not the way that it's now going to work. There's an imp- basically, you have the right as a worker to just ignore them. And that's your to ignore right. after hours contact. That's right. If, if it's not, in, if you're not being paid for it, basically. If you're not being paid for it, if it's not specifically kind of outlined, and so you know, it's it's it doesn't necessarily have to encroach too deeply. If your boss keeps persisting, you can take them to the Fair Work Commission. The proof will be in how it's executed in workplaces. We don't know that yet, and so you know, watch that space. It's a really interesting shift. I think it seems like the perfect time to bring in our guest, don't you reckon? I reckon. Let's do it. Cameron Stewart is the Chief International Correspondent at the Australian Newspaper and joins us today in the party room. Welcome. Thank you. Cam, it's always great to have you here on the party room. Um, it's been We've just been talking about what a big week it's been in domestic politics, but it's also been a big week on the international stage. If we start with the, well, what's the word, harrowing news, the uh, Australian-Chinese scholar and novelist Yang Heng Jun was handed a suspended death sentence by a Chinese court this week. That comes five years after he was detained on espionage charges. Foreign Minister Penny Wong was quick to condemn the sentence... The Australian government is appalled at this outcome. We will be communicating our response in the strongest terms. 
As a first step, I have directed my secretary to summon China's ambassador to Australia to express our objection. I want to acknowledge the acute distress that Dr Young and his family will be feeling today, coming after years of uncertainty. That was Penny Wong. It's certainly a blow for Young Heng Jun's family. They've been advocating for his release. They've been drawing attention to his ailing, failing health, really. And it's a terrifying sentence to be given, isn't it? Because at the very least, according to Chinese law, it means life imprisonment. But this decision, Cam, has bigger implications too, I think. The Chinese government's persisting with the line that, you know, this is just their judicial system at work, arm's length. But it's also a very stark warning, isn't it, to anyone, perhaps here or uh, in China, critical of China's ruling party. What are the raw politics of this? There's a few points there, I think, Fran. The raw politics are that anyone with an Australian passport who has crossed China needs to be very wary of going to China. That's obviously the one of the one of the points here. Uh, there's really no substance that we've seen as far as Dr. Yang's case goes. They claim he's guilty of espionage. We haven't seen what those charges are. Uh, he's been denied a lot of consular access. You know, it's been a nightmare case really, and it's a, a triple nightmare now with China suddenly and with unexpectedly coming out with this, uh, you know, life in prison or death sentence. And so the only way you can really see this ever being overturned is not through the courts, but in fact some political decision made by the Chinese government, which of course depends on the bigger picture of the Australia-China relationship. And that's where I think we're really seeing some interesting developments here and some quite disturbing ones in the sense that what we're really seeing is the China-Australia relationship is still finding its level, isn't it? I mean, we had the situation when uh, the Albanese government was elected where uh, China decided to use that as a reason to improve relationships. It took off the restrictions on barley and coal. We had uh, Chung Lei's release, and it looked like it was all going fine. But this really is a reality check, I think. Australia and China have recently strengthened bilateral ties, which is what you're referring to. You know, There has been a massive reset under this government, uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese met with Xi Jinping in Beijing last year, invited the Chinese leader to visit Australia this year. Let's see about that. Uh, trade tariffs on things like barley have been lifting, tariffs on wine and lobster expected to lift shortly. Let's see. It seemed like this was you know, never going back to normal but stabilising at least. How does the government balance calling this out, which it did and it must, but also staying on that road. It's a really tricky balance because, as you say, with the, the wine, for example, that decision still hasn't been made to remove the, the mm. blockages on Australian wine. It's expected next month. It probably will go ahead, but who really knows now? And I think for the government, they've had a couple of real surprises. Late last year, you remember the sonar incident where the Chinese warship mm. um, injured some Australian Navy divers with sonar pings. And then at the, earlier this month, we had something which didn't get that much publicity, but it was quite remarkable. The Chinese ambassador in Australia was very critical of Australia for simply passing on its congratulations to the president of Taiwan when the president won the election. And that was a pretty uh, strong words that he used. And now we have Dr. Yang. And so I think really what you're seeing in, in the Department of Foreign Affairs is a real sense of, well, OK, that trajectory was looking good. This is a reality check. This relationship is going to be fraught for a long time to come. So how do we manage it? I mean, after that meeting with Xi Jinping last year, Anthony Albanese declared the relationship was 
back on the right path and he was committed to navigating differences, he said, and I'm quoting here, wisely and with great respect. But does respect get us anywhere, Cam? And how respectful should Australia stay here publicly and behind the scenes? Or is it gloves off time? We heard Penny Wong there. She sounded angry. What are you expecting to see here? I think the government has decided that it's not a good idea to be entirely respectful here. Uh, I think that what the, the government did seem to go down that road a little bit. Remember, we had the confusion after the sonar incident where mm. um, uh, Anthony Albanese refused to say whether he raised it, it. Yeah, yeah with, with the president, right. US president. And I think that was a case where the government looked at that. They got quite a bit of criticism for that. And I think they decided that that's not a particularly good path. And I think you're right. I think China probably does respect uh, harder words. Now, we're not going to go back to the rhetoric of the Morrison-Turnbull governments, that's for sure, at this point. But I think the government uh, and Penny Wong's reaction suggests that they are going to be a bit tougher from here on in because China is the one who is turning the heat up and down with this relationship. They're the ones who have moved the dial all the way through with the previous mm. government and with this government, not the Australians. In fact, Penny Wong and the Albanese government have been remarkably consistent uh, in their language to do with China. Now, also this week, in fact, we're recording this Thursday as we do, and right now the PNG Prime Minister James Marape is addressing the parliament. Uh, he arrived in Canberra yesterday ahead of this historic address. He's the first Pacific leader to deliver a speech to a joint sitting of our parliament, so it is historically quite significant. Only the 10th foreign leader to do so as well. Cam, why are we rolling out the red carpet for PNG like this? Well, yes, this is a big deal, PK. I'm quite sympathetic to PNG. My my childhood years were spent there. And uh, it's a a wonderful place, but it's a very Mm. troubled place. Mm. And we've seen riots recently in New Guinea. The government is far from stable. It's a country that screams opportunity to Beijing. And China is, of course, trying to increase its influence across the Pacific, and Australia is desperately trying to shore up PNG as its nearest neighbour and make sure it is in Australia's camp. It signed a very big security deal with PNG in December, but this is, as you say, much more of the red carpet. Uh, Marape, the Prime Minister, is very pro-Australian, but he is being courted on all sides, as are all Pacific leaders, and this is a work in progress for Australia, and this is very much a bells and whistles trip that you're going to see a lot of colour and movement with. And he knows he's being courted, right? He 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 knows it, and he's playing it. He does. He he, he knows it, and uh, you know he's probably enjoying it. But uh, he's a he's a very smart politician. He's kept China at arm's length, but he certainly has not said no to China. And Foreign Affairs Department is very aware of the of that of that game. But to be fair, he is being much more straight laced than some of the Pacific leaders like um, Sogavare in Solomon Islands, who very much plays both sides as much as he can. Yeah, but um, I noticed that the the Prime Minister from Papua New Guinea has given an interview to the Australian, where he says very publicly that you know Australia remains PNG's main domestic security partner. How important is a public insurance like that? And does it come with a big price tag? You've already mentioned the big security deal last year. Yeah, it does come with a huge uh, price tag, Fran. I mean, uh, PNG is Australia's biggest aid recipient. Uh, it's, it's a very big 
amount of money that we pay towards PNG, and we'll have to keep paying for uh, for the foreseeable future. Really, I mean, it's a very troubled country, and and it's uh, right and on our doorstep, and it, it has health implications and all sorts of things. You know, unrest there for Australia, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. I mean, the US is also woken up to this too. They, they've um, got a defence deal with PNG as well. I mean, there's very much much more activity uh, under the Albanese government uh, and the, the Biden administration towards the Pacific Islands. They sort of really woke up uh, um, in relation to it and PNG is the number one client. But we're seeing it is a work in progress because across the Pacific, you know, you've got situations uh, now with Nauru swapping. You've got the Tuvalu issue, remember, um, where the Tuvalu struck that security deal with Australia, then they have an election and then the Prime Minister's not in power. I mean, these things are constantly fluid, constantly changing. It's a working project and even in progress. And even though Penny Wong has been like uh, Kissinger in the way she's visited so many places in the Pacific, I think she's been, been the strongest part of her foreign ministry. Um, you know, it's still very much a battle and a work in progress. I know Richard Miles has had this idea of uh, a Pacific Rugby League team as part of the NRL for a long, long time. He's been red hot on this for years. You know, he seems he's really vested in it and the power of it, isn't he? Yeah, I, I was in Port Moresby once um, during the State of Origin and Everybody was wearing either maroon or blue. I mean, it is an absolute religion there. And I think anything like that would be just so useful. I want to change the topic, if we can, to another huge international issue that, of course, has domestic implications. The Greens leader, Adam Bant, on Wednesday suspended standing orders to move a motion, noting the, and I'm quoting, appalling and increasing toll of deaths and injuries caused by the State of Israel's bombing and invasion of Gaza and calling on the government to end its support for Israel's invasion. There's a lot of politics in all of this. As we record on Thursday, UNRWA's funding, that's the UN um, body that, you know, helps all of the people in uh, Gaza, for instance, has still been suspended while there is an investigation. This is a tricky one for the government, isn't it? It's We've talked about it many times on the party room in the last few months, but... Yeah, the opposition leader really wants to, to, to try and put pressure on Anthony Albanese on, on, on his position on this. That's right. I mean, it's been the whole crisis since October 7 has been very difficult, I think, for the Labor government to, uh, to handle. They've been caught in the middle to a large degree, uh, and any time they take a step a little too far one way or too far another, they get smashed by both sides. I mean, this is just such an extraordinary uh, crisis over the past three months. I've never really reported on a foreign crisis that has less nuance in it than this. The extremes on both sides are very rigid, and that makes it very difficult for any government to navigate. It really does. And I think situation, I mean, this week we saw uh, the Greens meeting with pro-Palestinian protesters in Canberra and, you know, putting pressure on the government. I don't think it particularly increases the pressure on Albanese in the sense that he's got a lot of pressure coming from from the right, from uh, from Jewish groups and pro-Israeli groups, that they've been uh, too too soft on on the Palestinians, and so uh, the pressure is going the other way. I just don't think it changes the calculus. The government just has to be uh, try and be as balanced as it reasonably can, and inject nuance into a debate where there isn't much nuance. 
Cam, just finally, and I know this is not really your beat, but you have been around a very long time. We got episode two of Nemesis this week, which was a fairly unedifying experience, really. Um, when asked for one word to describe Peter Dutton, Malcolm Turnbull answered, thug. Now, we know that's an image problem that Peter Dutton's been trying to, to get rid of since he took over the leadership. And when he was asked about it the next day at Parliament House, uh, outside by reporters, he didn't completely just blow it off. Have you found me to be a thug? I think some of the narrative uh, is sort of retrofitting um, a particular purpose. And uh, in this job, uh, it'd be very difficult to go on the program, as I was asked to do, um, and give a true account of uh, the actions of some individuals. Um, but maybe at some stage I'll give an account to, uh, of the true character of some individuals. Maybe at some stage, so it sounds like a bit of a threat there. But maybe the slur got under his skin. What do you think? Oh, look, I don't think it would have got under his skin. I think he's pretty uh, pretty used to this stuff, Peter Dutton. A lot of stuff's been, been hurled at him. He seemed frustrated that he couldn't be a player in that, and he couldn't actually say what he thought he couldn't be, like Malcolm Turnbull sitting in that grand room and sort of uh, casting aspersions on various people. I think Peter Dutton you know, is clearly worried about his image, though. I mean, he's certainly presented a softer side of himself to a degree uh, since he took that job. The trouble is the country seems divided up in the north, um, in the northern part of Australia. They're, they're reasonably supportive of him. Down here in Victoria, uh, they're almost allergic to him. And I think that's just a fundamental problem that he's just really struggling to overcome. I think this is a good one to ask because you're Melbourne-based. Mm. Do you still think that's a case? I think that's a case, yes. I, really, uh, I think he really, really struggles to get traction here. And you don't think there's been a shift not that I've discerned, no, uh, no, not at all. But I mean, look, you know, at Victoria doesn't entirely elect the prime well, minister, so <laughs> so, you know. But I, I think he's got a real image problem uh, in Victoria, and uh, you know, Victoria is the most left wing state in the country. I mean, that's that's just a fact. Mm, interesting, Cam. I love picking your brain. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Cam. It's always great to have you on the podcast. We love it. Thank you. And Fran, before we go, it would be remiss of us not to mention another very significant thing that's happened this week. The Productivity Commission's scathing report into the the Closing the Gap strategy. Now, that strategy, of course, it's all governments, not just the federal government. It's a, an agreement with Aboriginal organisations to close the gap, right, in education, in, in a range of areas. And it gave governments this report a fail. It said that they are responsible for weak action on key areas, that radically we have to change the way we do things. There has to be power sharing and empowerment of Aboriginal communities, not just in name but in real action, that there needs to be accountability. It was searing. What's happening well, I mean, essentially, it was a real indictment, yes, on the actions of federal and state governments around the Closing the Gap strategy and that whole, you know, empowering Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, which is effectively where the the Closing the Gap agreement got to under the, the Morrison government. But also, PK, I think it was a, a very clanging kind of action call for the Albanese government to outline what steps it's going to take in the wake of the failed voice referendum, because that was all about greater empowerment of Indigenous communities. That was the whole pitch from Anthony Albanese. We needed to allow, to hear more from the communities that, you know, we're talking about here and we're dealing with here. And yet here's the Productivity Commission saying, well, you're saying that, but you've already got this opportunity and you're failing at it. And we haven't really heard much from the, from the Albanese government 
on Indigenous policy, have we, since The Voice? No, it certainly doesn't mean that, that there isn't some work going on. I wouldn't suggest that. But in terms of fundamental, big bang change, no, it's not happening. So the Prime Minister has wanted to focus on cost of living issues, mainstream issues, because it was under so much pressure last year, the government after the referendum went down and just generally throughout the year that it was not focused on these things enough. I thought that was largely unfair criticism because it was still doing all of that work. But either way, optics matter, uh, perceptions matter, and the perception was this. And so the Prime Minister has invested all of the perception space as well as the private, you know, what he was already doing space into cost of living issues. But at the same time, it looks like they've taken their eye off this other really important issue. And it may be politically tricky for them to keep the focus on this, but there's also the moral obligation for governments. No, I think that's right. Um, PK, I also want to note the passing of a, a really great Indigenous leader this week too, Loacha O'Donoghue. She was the inaugural chair of ATSIC um, during ATSIC's best years, I think. You know, I watched her up close for a very long time uh, when I was in Parliament House, particularly in her role as leader of the Native Title Negotiating Group in the wake of the Mabo decision from the High Court. Paul Keating met with this group. It was Loacha, Peter Yu, Noel Pearson, Patrick Dodson, the late Rob Riley and, and others. They were regulars around Parliament House at this time. I saw um, Lower should be described by someone as a graceful negotiator. I think that's a terrific description. She brought all the strength and determination forged from her very own difficult start to life as a member of the Stolen Generation. What a legacy she leaves behind, I think. She really does. Uh, she was always so kind to me. And uh, she is a huge loss for this country. And she, she certainly, um, the speeches in Parliament showed just how, how big her impact had been. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. The bells are ringing. This means it's time for our question time. And this week's question comes from Liz, who's written in to say, Hi, Fran and PK. My question is about housing. Oh, it's Fran's favourite topic. As a millennial, <laughs> many of my peers talk about their parents being empty nesters with two or three empty bedrooms in their homes. If they move somewhere smaller, some of these properties could even be redeveloped into low-rise apartments or townhouses, providing even more housing stock. Why hasn't the government tried to push older generations to right size in order to create opportunities for young families? Well, good question, Liz, and this is my favourite topic, part of it, but the truth is they have. This government and the government before them um, have done some things. The, uh, they brought in tax changes so that uh, to encourage people to look at selling their big house, downsizing, um, trying to encourage them to do that by giving them a tax break to put their money into super, for instance. They've said that if once you get to 55, if you sell your house, you could be eligible to put up to $300,000 each. So for a couple, that's 600000 from the proceeds of part of your sale into super. So that's a real big super boost for a couple. And then if you've hopefully still got enough money left to buy yourself a smaller property, they've done that. They're also giving um, people who sell their family home a longer time to spend that money, in other words, to find your 
your new house or build your new house or whatever it is before it starts to impact your pension. So they are trying to do these things, but there's also, you know, it's hard to change. It's hard for people to change and as people get older, uh, they might be reluctant to leave a neighbourhood they know and they like to be around friends. So there's it's, it's a lot of different elements here. The government is thinking about this, has been trying to do things. I have no, no data to show how successful that's been, um, but I think it is definitely on the sort of policymakers, you know, antenna. Oh, it's, yeah, on the antenna and you're right, it's been tried. But it's also a, a funny one. Yes, you want to have the incentives there, but, you know, you can't force people either, right? And there are other reasons why um, some older people decide to stay in those houses and it's, you know, it's a bit tricky too. We'd love to get your questions. Please sending them in. We're especially fond of voice notes. I mean, I really enjoyed, Liz, your question, but you could record next time. Uh, you can send them to the party room at abc.net.au. And remember, you can follow the party room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. And better still, before we go, PK, we should let everyone know they can see the party room live very, very soon. Yeah, that's right. We are doing a live show on Sunday, the 18th of February. Uh, we're going to be joined by Guardian Australia's editor, Lenore Taylor, for a very special The Party Room live at the Mardi Gras Fair Day in Sydney. The show kicks off at 1pm, so come join us. Yeah, that's right. Get there early because I'm also judging the, the dog competition, the dog show. So, hey, you can make a day of it. Oh, when my kids hear that, they will be like, Fran's judging the dog competition. She's cooler than you. Great. Thanks, Fran. I look forward to watching you. Maybe I should bring Bindi. Uh, absolutely. You oh, might no. win the one where the, own, the owner looks like the puppy. Yeah, we do look similar. <laughs> it's true. We've got similar hair. All right. That's it for the party room this week. See you, Fran. See you, Pico.